If God isn't essentially hidden and instead appears as a historical and sociological authority, then politics takes over and all hell breaks loose. Then you get the institutional church and you get priests who tell you what God said and you become you, the believer, become subject to the hierarchy of the church, and as Illich argues, um, the church is the archetype of all Western institutions and governments, and that's why um, the West <laughs> lost its way, Corbin thinks, um, because schools... Uh, governments, uh, uh, um, think of businesses, they're all modeled on the hierarchical structure of the church. And so it's all, <laughs> it's all the, for, the, the fault of incarnational um, Christology. Corbin says, you can even see that in, Shia, in the history of the Shiites. Everything's fine until they get political control, and then they forget that the source of authority is essentially hidden and esoteric, and then all hell breaks loose. Hello there. Welcome. Uh, my name is John Price. I'm the host of The Sacred Speaks. And uh, <laughs> I guess I'm excited. <laughs> All these conversations are fun. Um, today's participant is Tom Cheatham. And uh, I'll, I'll... Yeah, I th actually I'll start with with part of this story. So I, I had been reading James Hillman and I think in my search for some of his books, it was recommended down at the bottom of the screen by, you know, Amazon or something that I should get, uh, that I should get imaginal love by Tom Cheatham. So I, I trusted the algorithms <laughs> intuition. 
if you can even call it that. I trusted the algorithm. And I ordered Tom's book and was pleasantly surprised and happy and um, very excited about what came out of reading that book. So it was really, it was an absolute pleasure to be able to chat with him and uh, and both talk about the book, but also go kind of off book and get into a lot of other subjects. I want to read a little bit about Tom uh, and then get into some of the music and then we'll get started. So the f- first thing is that Tom Cheatham uh, has a podcast and I want to talk that up for a second. It's called As Various, Variously as Possible. And I've been listening to it. It's lovely. And if you're interested uh, in the imaginal world, um, I don't even really know what that means, but in the imagination or the meaning of the imagination, the experience of the imagination, then he is your guy. So uh, check him out um, as variously as possible. And also you can just do a Google search of Tom Cheatham, T-O-M-C-H-E-E-T-H-A-M, um, and uh, Google Sites, and um, search that, and it'll um, it'll pop up his website. And his website is fun to go through. He's got books and events and podcasts and videos and essays and blogs and merch and websites and interviews and uh, really anything you'd need to learn more about him. So you can do that, and in the liner notes of the of this podcast, I will include links to Tom's work. So the, the so there's there's the first thing as variously as possible, and his website, I, the book Imaginal Love, the subtitle The Meanings of Imagination in Henry Corbin, or Henri Corbin if you prefer, and James Hillman, by Tom Cheatham, Spring Publications. I, I highly recommend the book. And he has six or seven other books um, on many different topics. Just go check out the website and uh, and look him up. I had a an absolute fantastic time chatting with him. His background, and I'll, I'll just read a little bit of um, of his bio. So he graduated from Connecticut College in 1974 with a BA in philosophy, magna cum laude, and coursework in history and the history of arts, and received a Susan Langer Award for Achievement in Philosophy. Uh, among the most lasting influences were his reading of Hegel, Heidegger, Kassir, uh, Panofsky, um, and Kranz. And so he worked... After several years working as a carpenter and woodworker and two abortive attempts at a graduate degree in philosophy, he returned to school in the natural sciences. And he initially wanted to pursue a degree in physics and abandoned that and went into the world of biology, in particular systemic entomology. And um, it, it has been, a, he's, <laughs> he, he uh, can get you excited about my, the microscopic world. He, he talks about this in the in the interview and goes into um, the value of looking at the <laughs> the microscopic world. And in part of this bio that I'm reading from, he goes into in his uh, in our conversation, so I'm not going to read all of it. But essentially, through his work, he ended up connecting with. Uh, he's been a professor and uh, 
a writer, um, but it was really when he connected with James Hillman's work that then directed him also to Henry Corbin, and it and Henry Corbin is a scholar of Islamic mysticism and, as Tom says, a master of Western theology and philosophical theological and philosophical thought, and that opened things up for him. and uh, And we chat about that. He he is a um, well, he, 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 if you listen to Tom, it's really difficult not to get excited about the things that he's talking about. And he has a way of helping us understand the imaginal and poetic um, reality. Uh, and he's not a psychologist, which I really like. Um, as, a, as, a, as a person who my, my doctorate is in psychology, so it's really nice to chat with somebody outside of that, outside of that world. Um... Okay, what else? So that's Tom. Um, I urge you to check out his site. I urge you to listen to his podcast. Um, yeah. Okay, now I want to jump ship for a second because part of the uh, an underlying energy that I spoke about in my last interview with Gary Sparks, um, or at least the intro of that of that episode twenty. I was talking about the influence that music has had and on, on me and my life, but also it's been a growing beast <laughs> in this project. And since I'm talking to Tom about the imagination and, and uh, you know, we talk about entomology and philosophy and psychology and religion, uh, I, I, I couldn't help but keep one band in my mind uh, the band is Centromatic, and th- there's a story here that the singer, Will Johnson, probably heard from me three or four times <laughs> to his complete boredom, um, but uh, it's, a, it's a meaningful story to me. I, had, uh, I was in my early 20s, and I had a gathering of people at my house, and in my CD player, the next day, I, I got up and found this CD with no words on it. It didn't. It just had an image, and so I didn't know whose it was or what it was or what band it was or anything. And so I listened to it, and my mind opened. It, it was amazing. And I, I then for six months, I would tell anybody that I played it for, please don't. If you know this band, please don't tell me who it is. And I, I don't know that I really even understood. I, I think the words that I had then were, were just that I. I wanted to kind of savor this experience and not go look them up or not know more about them or not just kind of not know anything, but just be in this kind of suspended, irrational place with this music that I adored. Well, I ended up having some more people to my house at some point, and a friend of mine said, oh yeah, that's dramatic," and I went, ah, shit. But uh, but then I I was rewarded by the search that I would then do because at the time I was living in Fort Worth, Texas, and um, University of North Texas was very close. Come to find out, the band was a kind of quote local band. So Will Johnson was and and all the guys in Centromatic were around a lot, and in fact played just up the street at a club I used to play quite a lot. So. I would go to shows and it was, it was, I've, I've, that band in particular has been a really special, uh, 
special group to me for the last almost 20 years. So the I want to start with, now I want to kind of, uh, again, you can look in the liner notes and check check out the links to Centromatics Music. And also I'm going to include a link to Will Johnson's new project, uh, Marie Lepanto. And that uh, is at will-johnson.com. Uh, he's, he's done a lot of, a number of amazing things in the music world. He's a painter also. So check out his website. Um, and I'm going to play a couple the, the songs I'm playing. So this the intro piece that I played earlier is off his first album with Centromatic. And it was all Will. I mean, he played, I, I'm pretty sure he played most of the instruments and cr- then began a relationship with Matt Pence, who ended up uh, playing drums for the group. But he's a producer that a number of my friends worked with. So the <clears throat> that album is Redo the Stacks, and then this song that I'm about to play for you is from Redo the Stacks. The last song on this podcast is from that album that I found in my um, in my CD player. It's the album is Navigational, and the song is Ordinary Days. There's a there's a different um, feel to those two albums, of course, but um, they're they're pretty sacred to me. So I, I love the opportunity to be able to present them here in this format. For those of you who are new to the podcast, what I do is um, I essentially go after people who've been influential, authors I've read, people of, uh, of interest to help me in this project where I'm researching kind of the sacred dimension of everyday life. And uh, music, of course, is a massive part of that. And so what I've I started, you know, with little bits of music, and as this has evolved, this is now episode 21, as this has evolved, I have uh, put music, (laughs) I have uh, emphasized music even more in the project, so I'm adding more more opportunities to get to know some of these bands, and primarily the bands are old friends of mine and people I've I've encountered um, earlier in my career when I was a professional musician. So uh, this is exciting. Check out this uh, this song. It's called Fidgeting Wildly, and it was an anthem for a long time with uh, a number of my friends. And the uh, the first song, as I said, was was Hoist Up the Popular Ones, and these are both from the same album. So check it out. I'm helping you see.
starts. Yeah, that's when I started. So when's the last time you listened to an entire catalog of a of an artist, of a musician, with headphones on? Uh, that's the coolest thing about what I've been doing on this project is, it's well, it's one of the coolest things, um, is being able, in preparation for these episodes, being able to listen to um, as much as I can. Well, Will Johnson and Centromatic, it's pretty tough to listen to the entire catalog. They There are tons of albums. I mean, Will's been involved in probably, I don't even, 14 albums. Um, there, there's so much to mine through, but I, I think you should, <laughs> and I think you should do it with headphones on. If if there's any public service announcement I want to make, it's that you need to get a decent pair of headphones and uh, and listen to music in that way. Ideally, not the earbuds, but you know something that can kind of put you into this imaginal space. And I I quoted it last time. I'll quote it this time. I taught a class on the body and consciousness recently, and one of my favorite quotes that came out of it was from Beethoven. It's, music is the intermediary between the sensual and the spiritual life. And that's why I'm bringing more music into this project. So uh, just a couple of notes. The theme music that you'll listen to each episode is from Modern Nations. Get them at modernnationsmusic.com. This project is The Sacred Speaks. And the website is thesacredspeaks.com, T-H-E-S-A-C-R-E-D-S-P-E-A-K-S.com. You can reach, you can also search The Sacred Speaks on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, Please do, I post stuff, uh, probably Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, I post all these episodes on there. But the website, I have links to all the bands, links to all the participants, bios to the participants, music videos from the bands. Uh, anything that I can get my hand on, hands on, I'm, I'm, I'm moving to that website. So check it out, thesacredspeaks.com. Okay, I think that's it. Thank you for listening. This is a, this is a life-giving project for me. Thanks for listening. Next week, I will post an episode from Jungian analyst Kate Burns. On and we talk about her book on initiation uh, and liberation. Um, so, thanks. I'm glad you're here. Believe it there. Okay. Well, all right. We'll see what happens. Yeah. Good. Yeah. So, yeah. Just um. Yeah. So, uh, roll your roll your tape and we'll start. Good. We're all we're right. going. You want to. St- you want to start? We're going. You want to start with a question? Yeah. I, you... So the first thing, the one of the main things that I've really been interested in, and um, I think one of the advantages of doing a project like this is is the book kind of comes off the page and you get to talk to, I get to talk mm-hmm. to all these folks that have been influential and uh, kind of informed parts of my thinking. and um, And we get to experiment in a pretty erotic way going through the, the the kind of beauty of conversation and so so of course the background component is really interesting and I know my understanding is that your background is in zoology is that correct well it's yeah but it's sort of more complicated than that um 
Um, so my undergraduate degree, well, see how far back do I want to go? Not quite to the womb. Um, yeah, you can go I back far. Really, yeah, yeah, you can cut, you can cut all this no, stuff. Go back, go back so, far. That's so, great. <laughs> so I'm going, um, I, I, well, actually, because this is really important for me, I've been mean, talking about being autobiographical and yeah. personal. I was, I was in the backwoods yesterday, which is right there. We live on a nice homestead in Maine. And, and I was collecting moss because I've gotten sort of interested in, in um, moss lately. So I was coming back from my 10-minute collecting trip um, to the woods with my little plastic bags full of moss and I just had the silliest grin on my face and my eyes were all wide and buggy. And, and I thought, oh, my God, this reminds me of when I was a little kid and I used to have um, a museum in the in the playroom upstairs. And my father had brought home for me all these um, wooden boxes um, that he'd put shelves in and I would come into the house from out and back. We lived in the country and I had birds nests and egg cases and bones and crud and, you know, dirt and insects. And I just had everything I could lay my hands on and, and walking out of the woods yesterday afternoon, I thought, shit, this is that same feeling. I love this. I'm bringing my little baggies full of stuff home. And, and then I'm going to put them on the table and look at them with my microscopes and my hand lenses. And yeah. And so when I was quite small, um, I wanted to be nothing but a scientist. Um, and then high school was not a terrible experience, but it wasn't particularly good. Um, and by the time I was through high school, um, I didn't want to go to college at all. I mean, zero. Didn't want to go to college. And so my, <laughs> uh, my mother worked at her alma mater at Connecticut College in, in New London. And she knew I would get in because it was 1970 was the first year that they took men because it was a woman's college. And she knew damn well I'd get in because because I did well enough in high school. Um, but I, was, I refused to fill out the application. So she did the application and wrote my essay and submitted it. And lo and behold, <laughs> lo and behold, I got in. And I was really pissed off because I didn't want to go. And so I thought, well, what can I take? And, and I didn't take a single science course, except for I got away. I, I did one, you know, science for liter, literary types or something. I didn't take a single science course because they all had introductions. You know, I had to take introduction to biology or introduction to chemistry. And I didn't want an introduction to anything. I'd had it with bullshit. You know, I wanted the real thing. And the only course that I could find, that the only curriculum that I could find where you didn't need to take the intro course was philosophy. You didn't have to take intro to philosophy. You could just take ancient philosophy, which was, you know, 110 or something. So I took it. And I, and I got a professor who was just, well, he was good for me. And he stood up there and he, we were talking about being and non-being. And, and, and it just, I thought, 
and he would get so excited. He was a metaphysician, you know, and they all, they're kind of like <laughs> mathematicians and they draw, you know, they draw being and the world and God and all that stuff. And it was, that was it. That was the end of that. So I became a philosophy major and I never took a single science course. And there's a long, boring intervening period during which I, I, I went to graduate school in philosophy twice and dropped out both times, first time after about eight weeks and the second time after a year. And then there's another long, vague period where I did a lot of work as a carpenter and a mason and that sort of stuff. And then I got to be 30 years old, and I found myself on the roof of a house in Connecticut in November, and it was sleeting, and it was awful. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do this <laughs> for the rest of my life. Then there's a short period of deep crisis, and I ran across a guy whom I was a good friend of my father's and he gave me the one of the better pieces of, of advice that I've ever gotten. And he said, well, what did you always want to be? And I said, well, I always wanted to be a physicist. He said, well, why don't you go be one? I thought, well, shit. Okay. And so I enrolled as a non-degree student at the University of Connecticut and I took engineering physics and I took calculus and I did pretty well, but it was very hard for me. And my my soon to be wife was in was in botany and agricultural sciences, and she had to take an entomology course. And she said, "Do you want to help me collect insects?" And I didn't have anything particular to do that summer because I was kind of because of the way I'd come into the physics program, I was out of step with their program. Um, and so I said, "Sure." And the first time I saw an insect under a hand lens. I fell in love. And, and, and so I took the next semester, I took the math that I needed for physics, but I also took uh, another, another uh, way of getting away, for, uh, getting away without taking any intro courses because I was 30 years old, you know, and I was just paying by the course. So they're not going to require me to do anything. So I took entomology from the guy who was the editor of the Journal of the Entomological Society of America, who was a fantastic teacher. And I took um, evolution from Stephen Kahlo, who's now head of the uh, ecology program at Princeton, and he was very good. And I took vertebrate zoo from a woman who took us out onto the on Long Island Sound to dredge up worms from the mud. And it was so fantastic. I never had so much fun in my life. And I said, these people are having way more fun than the physicists. So the <laughs> hell with them. And, and, and so I just, I just got completely in love with, with biology. Um, there's a long story in between, but I'll tell you this too, because, because it doesn't, it's just craziness. So I still had in the back of my mind that I should do um, physics because I do love physics and I loved um, theoretical physics and I wanted to do complex, complex systems uh, because because I read um, Robert May's review article in Nature in 1980-something, Complex Dynamics in Simple Nonlinear Systems, which still is an absolutely 
stunning introduction to complex systems. So I really wanted to do that. So I told my my wife at, at that point, she was she said, I, I, let's go to grad school. And I said, fine, but I don't really know where I want to go because I don't know whether I want to do biology or physics. And she said, well, okay, then I'll apply and we'll go where I get in. Okay, fine. So she's in, she's in agriculture and she, we went to Iowa State. And I talked to the I talked to the head of the physics department. He says, if you want to do theoretical physics and complexity, you don't want to be here. And, uh, well, I am here. Um, so I went to the entomology department. And, um, and I, I knew I wanted to do, system, if I was going to do biology, I knew, knew I wanted to do taxonomy and, and the kind of evolutionary biology that really attracted me because of the diversity of life. I'd love, it's one of the reasons I love Hillman, um, because of diversity. You know, I mean, you touch anything in biology and it just explodes into glorious complexity and diversity. So I knew I wanted to do at that point, I wanted to do entomology. And because it's an ag school, most people were doing, you know, pest control kinds of things, which is perfectly legit, but I didn't have any interest in it. And so the only person there who was a taxonomist um, was one of the handful of people in the world who are experts on um, fleas. And so I thought, well, okay, I can work under him. And I said, you know, can I, can I join this program? And, and he said, sure, of course you can. He's Robert Lewis, and he was a real character. I think he's still alive, but he's bloody old now. And, uh, and he said, well, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't know, some sort of taxonomy, but I sure as hell don't want to do fleas. Uh, and he said, well, okay, just pick a group and you can work on it. And I chose a group. We needn't go into it. And after about six or eight months, I realized well, there's nobody here that knows anything about these damn bugs. And I'm screwed. And so I went to him and I said, look, would it, I've been thinking about fleas. And he said, so have I. And, uh, and that was it. So he had this huge collection. And I said, well, what, do you, what have you got for an interesting project? Well, he said, and he gave me an interesting project. And so my dissertation, which I don't have in this room, is called Male Genitalia and Phylogeny of the Pulicoidea. I spent three and a uh, half Tom, years. Tom, hang on. Let me, let me stop you. It tweaked out for a second. Would you say the title again? Yeah, male genitalia and the phylogeny of pulicoidea. <laughs> I spent three and a half years looking at the penis of fleas. I am not making this up. And, and, and I got to say, it was fantastic. If this were going to be a YouTube video, I could go get it and show it to you. Um, well, and, and so it's actually, now let's not go down that little rabbit hole <laughs> but I, if you gave me 10 minutes i could get you completely fascinated in um sexual uh, morphology of the fleas and their behavior is very interesting in fact it was but well, wait, wait, bar- wait wait let me let me wait, hang, on, no, hang no, on yeah 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 go ahead i i want to go there i want to see what is if you're willing to go there i want to know what's so interesting about that Okay, let's see. Well, in a group of organisms like, well, in many, many organisms, it's not quite so true of mammals, but it's certainly true of most 
if not all invertebrates, that they, they tend to be very constrained by their ecologies. So if you're interested in studying their evolutionary histories, that is how they have changed over time, it can be somewhat misleading to look at their external adaptations to the environment because two organisms that live in the same environment will tend to share the same kinds of characteristics even if they're not genetically uh, related. But one place where organisms are not constrained by their environment is in their sexual organs, which can uh, pretty much develop just in concert with the other species, the other, the other sex. Um, Darwin knew about this. I mean, it was one, it was a big deal for Darwin, and he wrote a lot about sexual selection, because sexual selection is different from natural selection. It's perfectly natural. There's nothing unnatural about it. But it is true for many groups of invertebrates and some some vertebrates, though <laughs> it's less true there. Um, that if you want to know anything about their 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 evolutionary history, you really need to look at their you really need to look at their private parts. Uh, there's a there's a good. Uh, did you know that Vladimir Dabakov, the guy who wrote Lolita and all those other magnificent novels, was a world renowned expert on the Pierrot butterflies, and he worked at the Harvard Museum of um, the Comparative Zoology sometimes in his spare time. They would give him a little room where he could do precisely what I did with fleas, only with these little tiny blue butterflies. And he actually described um, several species based on their genitalia. There's a marvelous book called Nabokov's Butterflies, which you should read. Um, so I'm not the only crazy uh, humanist who has devoted a certain <laughs> amount of time to this. And, and it's true. It was true in the in the 19th century too that a lot of gentlemen, you know, gentlemen naturalists in in in, in Europe um, devoted a good bit of time to these sorts of uh, pastimes. In any case. Uh, it was, in fact, very interesting for me, and I really did. I love microscope work, as it turned out, because I have what Stephen Jay Gould um, referred to. He says there's a German word for what you need if you're a taxonomist or a paleontologist. You need Sitzfleisch, which is sitting flesh in German. You've got to be able to just sit yeah. and stare down that tube hour after hour after hour and look at very tiny things and draw them and all that. But one of the glories for me was that, um, oh, and there's a long story there, but we don't want to go there. Um, I had access not only to the, to the light microscopes in the entomology department, but also through a strange series of unfortunate events, I had unlimited free access to the electron microscope lab in the biochemistry department. Um, and so I would, I just, I just played 
I learned, I took a great course with Harry Horner in the botany department that taught me how to do uh, scanning and transmission electron microscope work. And back in the day, you didn't have digital uh, machinery. So you had to learn, you had to learn how to develop your photographs in the darkroom. So I literally spent three and a half, almost four years, either staring down a tube, uh, looking at things or in the darkroom. Um, and my major professor once or twice kind of looked at me because he because it was expensive. You're supposed to spend like you're supposed to pay like 50 bucks an hour to use the microscope, the electron microscopes. And I had them for free for various reasons we needn't go into. Um, so he says, I don't know how you're doing this, but it's wonderful. Um, and so anyway, so I so the the reason that's the reason that's interesting is because in the long run it got the, the being able to to do the microscopy got me my postdoc with the USDA got me my teaching job because they needed someone to run the electron microscope and I had that job for almost 10 years and got tenured and then quit and moved to Maine wondering what we would do and I got a job um, in an environmental testing lab based on the fact that I knew how to use microscopes. Um, so it all worked out pretty well. So, but what you're trying to ask is how does this, yeah, this background stuff. So I mean, so, so my, my original, my original life was being wildly enthusiastic about biology. Then I went through this philosophical phase and got my, you know, um, my, my, my undergraduate degree in philosophy. And then I got my PhD in the biological sciences with all sorts of interests in evolution and in complex dynamical systems theory. Um, and I ended up, I, I ended up in, in, um, in Pennsylvania teaching at, a, at Wilson college, a really small women's college, still bifurcated. You know, I have all this biological background and I taught biology there for, for nine years. Um, and had because it was a really small biology department, I had the chance to teach all sorts of crazy things. Uh, I taught invertebrate zoo, and I taught microbiology, and I taught cell biology, and I taught genetics, and I all sorts of things. But this was during the um, the late '80s and into the '90s. I think we left in '97, um, and they wanted to start an environmental studies program, and because of my because of my continuing interest in philosophical um, issues, um, and because we have a very small <laughs> number of faculty, I was responsible for setting up the environmental studies program. And so we set it up in such a way that it was essentially, um, it had either a humanities track or a science track, and I taught in both tracks um, because because of my my couple of years uh, in 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 a fail in failed attempts to to uh, to do a, a graduate degree in philosophy I could do that stuff so in the afternoon in the morning I would teach genetics in the afternoon I would teach Heidegger and about <laughs> yeah and in 1990 I went to the Santa Fe Institute and there's a long story there um, but I I got hooked up with Stuart Kaufman who's is still alive, still around. Um, he's one of the leading lights in the um, complex systems world. And there's a long story there that would send us back Be 10 years. Before you dive into that, will you define that for, for anybody? Yeah. The complex um, systems. 
Yeah, it's 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 um, it was a really hot topic back in the 80s. It still is in a way. Um, there's a difference between com- um, um, merely complicated things like a watch and complex systems like um, a human being or a brain or uh, under certain circumstances, a computer network, or there, there are some, there are some um, objects in the world that are describable pretty well with standard mechanics, and a, and a wind-up watch is one of those. It's very complicated, but it's not complex. Things like Phenomena like the weather or your brain or an ecosystem are technically complex and they behave with characteristically um, with with characteristic um, um, uh, in, in characteristic ways that are inherently unpredictable and therefore um, are of extreme interest to scientists of all sorts. Um, Societies are arguably complex systems. Economies are arguably complex systems. Why is it that nobody knows what the Dow Jones average is going to do tomorrow? Because it's a complex system. It's not merely complicated, it's complex. And so there's a qualitative difference. I wanted to study those things right from the beginning when I wanted to do physics back when I first went back to school at the age of 30, but things didn't turn out that way. But then I got it. Then I got engaged to, with, with um, Stuart Kaufman's work. And he sent me to, this all comes to a head in just a minute. He sent me to, um, uh, he, he, he allowed me to go to the first Santa Fe Institute complex systems summer school, which was magnificent. The, the, the Santa Fe Institute is still there, and I think they still run their summer school. Um, and I was there because, um, because I'm relatively smart, and Stuart liked me, um, but I don't have the, the technical background. And there were people there who didn't. It wasn't just physicists and mathematicians. Um, there were a handful of of biologists and a handful of humanists um, and economists and computer people. And it was quite astonishing. I mean, I was really an outlier there, but it was really fun to see people from uh, young and old at the top of their game in some of the the most complicated uh, uh, um, um, endeavors in the world. And it was really fun. Where it came to the head for me, um, so I was 38 at the time, and the Santa Fe Institute is across the Rio Grande from Los Alamos. And Los Alamos National Laboratory is, a, is of course, the place where, where the first atomic bomb was designed and, and then tested in the New Mexico desert. And they were, st- they were connected to the Santa Fe Institute. And there were a lot of people from Los Alamos who were, who were at the Institute, which, you know, is vaguely bothersome. And then there's a long, I could, I could do some details here, but I won't bother. But I became more and more aware of the fact that there were, that there were aspects of some of the kinds of research 
going on at the Santa Fe Institute that were going to be used by people who were going to use them for things that were going to be morally repugnant to me, you know? And I thought, I remember thinking, oh my God, they've got biology too. My naive love of biology was just that, a naive love of biology. But humans being humans, the more we know about anything, the more we want to control it. And the more, the better and better we get at controlling the things we understand, the more dangerous we become. Okay. Um, and suddenly I realized, oh, of course, biology isn't, uh, uh, biology is not free from this. this. This was in the early days of bioengineering and, you know, all this sort of stuff. In fact, I was just listening to a podcast the other day where they were bringing up precisely these issues. They were talking, oh, uh, who the hell was it? Um, it was somebody talking about um, Elon Musk and all these other, you know, techie guys who want to, uh, you know, set up colonies on Mars or go to New Zealand because the because the culture is about to collapse around them. And they they want to be able to um, either download their brains into computers. And apparently that's something that one of the Google guys, I don't know, is actually actively talking about. Um, and they want to or they want to build bunkers in New Zealand and what the podcast was about was trying to <laughs> point out the absurdity of this. Why don't you, why don't you not try to escape the world that you're destroying, but maybe, maybe you could help uh, work on it. Well, when I was listening to improve it and while I was listening to the podcast, I thought, well, shit, that's exactly what was, what I was seeing at the Santa Fe Institute in 1990. There was a, there was a paper by, Christ, was it Doreen, Doreen Farmer? There was a paper by somebody, a, a Santa Fe Institute working paper dated in the late 80s or early 90s called The Coming Biological Evolution. And as I recall, and perhaps I'm wrong, um, the argument was, well, you know, we are going to create intelligent life. And of course, this is 1990, and we've come an enormous way since then. Um, but we're going to create intelligent life that's going to be much more intelligent than we are. And we should just give our, you know, just give ourselves over to it. You know, we are the next stage after, you know, whatever. Um, and whatever we create is going to be the next stage after us. And if they turn around and use us as slaves or destroy us, well, it's fine. We've served our place in the, in the you know, in the global evolution and and so we shouldn't we shouldn't fight it and i at the time i thought well shit <laughs> i don't think so that's not my vision of humanity so i had a moral and intellectual crisis and i was also 38 years old almost 40 years old and so it seemed turned out to have been a really good time to have my own Jungian crisis too. And I started to get a little bit psychotic and, you know, here I was immersed in theoretical biology and theoretic, you know, and theoretical philosophy and theoretical everything and being sort of the typical head type 
um, with let's see from in Jungian terms I was I was the the thinking type with an undeveloped feeling function and I fit I fit that pretty well so I had just a hell of a I had a hell of a time this is the everything collapsed back yeah and and I, I everything just collapsed around me and I got myself a Jungian analyst and while I was in Santa Fe, I went to a very good bookstore there, and I saw a book that was pretty inter- looked pretty interesting, and I grabbed it, and I actually have it right here still. It's um, um, A Blue Fire, Selected Writings of James Hillman by Thomas Moore. And I grabbed it, and I didn't read it for some months for, <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. And once I was back home in Pennsylvania with my child and wife, one day I grabbed it and I opened it up and I started reading and it just knocked my socks off. And I thought, and he's talking about the poetic basis of mind Mm -hmm. and the centrality of imagination. And it just completely flipped me out. And I remember, maybe I'm wrong, but my memory is, I thought, this is what I've been looking for all my life. So I spent a number of years reading Hillman and being completely, just completely entranced by it because there was some sense in which, I think this is, I still think this is true. There's a sense in which Hillman uh, occupies a kind of middle ground between, well, as he would put it, and that's where the core band comes in, between spirit and body. Um, He occupies the region of soul, which was, pretty much undeveloped in me being a dualist, you know, and, and trained as the scientist and a philosopher, both of which um, from human's point of view are spirit, you know, and, and for whatever deep reasons, Hillman just completely, oh, and I started writing, I spontaneously started writing poetry, um, which was a form I realized much later on was a form of active imagination for me, which really helped me uh, get an anchor on the crazy bullshit that was going on in my, in my emotional life. Um, And so I read Hillman passionately and some poets for, I don't don't know how long, but certainly three or four years. Um, And then I, then I ran across his, his essay, the thought of the heart and the soul of the world, which, Actually, I think I also have right here. And in the first page of that book, he says, he starts talking about Henri Corbin. And I knew Jung's work because I had to kind of do a little research on Jung to figure out where Hillman was coming from. I had never heard of Henri Corbin before. And, and I thought, and if you haven't seen the thought of the heart and the soul of the world, those first three or four pages where he writes about um, Henri Corbin at Aranos, um, it's obvious that Hillman's just really smitten with this guy, absolutely in love with him and his work. And I thought, well, if Hillman likes him, I, I need to find that out. I need to find out something about this guy. So I bought myself a copy of Creative Imagination and the Sufism of Ibn Arabi. And 25 years later, um, I came out the other end. There. That's how I got started. <laughs> so a, and a how lot, I finished. A lot, uh, obviously, is in that. 
you it's so crazy how this works you spontaneously went into something that i had in the back of my mind that i wanted just to ask you about in the given chance that you had an experience in it and there you go do you, as a well the i guess we can get there this way uh why do the, why does the humanist and the scientist why do why do they fight what's the battle oh, it's there? the fundam- it's it's the fundamentalism in me um, and I, I can tell you what happens in me. Uh, so, so I, I know where that battle comes from in me and, and I can argue at length why it's, why, why it's delusory, <laughs> but I, but I know where it comes from in me and it's, it's popping its head up again. Um, just, just recently, um, uh, um, for reasons that perhaps it would be good to get into it a little bit. Um, let's see how the easiest way to say this. Uh, boy, I don't know. I don't know. I know what form it takes. It takes a kind of fundamentalist form where uh, just, just a really uh, straightforward uh, 19th century reductionism. Mm-hmm. You know, if biology is really chemistry and chemistry is really physics and physics is really just, you know, clinking balls one against another, bang, 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 and you do Newton and Lagrange and you get, you know, that's it. You know, then that explains everything. You know, then really all you have to know is you just have a theory of everything and it explains everything. And if you know your fundamental particles, I mean, there's this kind of, so so to the point that, um, I mean, it's it's like it's like um, like rat psychology, you know. It's the the allure of the simple, the allure of the well, you know. Human emotions are so complicated; they really must not have any meaning. Let's just explain them away. Um, uh, maybe maybe it's I I I got to I got to think that it's it's a gendered thing, at least in our culture. Um, it's a desire for clarity, simplicity, lack of emotional messiness. Um, let's just do that. So, and 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 then there's then there's then there's more then there's more psychic, rather. How do I want to say this? Then there's an, then there's an emotional tangle that I that I guess in my own personal life I I blame on both of my parents who were fundamentalists in different ways about entirely different things. Mm-hmm. My father was as secular a person as I've ever met, and and very much although he, very much in the um, um, in 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 this in the sense that um, liberals also always um, 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 blame Republicans with, you know, if it's not economics, if it's, these are the hard bolts of life. That's just the way it is. There is no freedom. This is just it. You know, I have a huge amount of that in me um, to the point that, I mean, that's partly the crisis that was going on when I discovered Hillman um, to the point that, I had to stay away from reductive science for 20 years because, well, here's, here's, here's my standard example. It happened to Darwin late in one of his notebooks, and Robert Bly quotes this um, somewhere in News of the Universe. Um, Darwin writes, 
you know, I've been doing this. I've been doing this Darwinian stuff for so long now. I used to really enjoy music and I used to really enjoy cultured things. And now my brain seems to have become just a machine for cranking out facts. And I'm really susceptible to that. And there's a part of me, and I think there's a part of this in an awful lot of people, which is why I have sympathy for fundamentalist religious people. I, I know where their inability to accept modern science comes from. The Bible is literally true. And if we don't accept that, then it's a slippery slope and we don't have souls and we're just machines and there's no morality that kind of they're fundamentalist on one side there's certain kinds of scientists who are uh richard dawkins is a, is a good example um the the what i think they call themselves these days the new atheists mm -hmm. um they're they're another kind of fundamentalist yeah um there's fundamentalists everywhere um I know a guy, I know of a guy, don't know him well, who manages to be both a fundamentalist Catholic and a fundamentalist scientist. And I don't know how he pulls that off. But, <laughs> um, but there's, there's something in most of us, and, and there's something in me that, can't, that has a lot of trouble adopting an easy pluralism. And I've been uh, the, the, of the sort that Hillman at least tends to be able to adopt. And I have been trying to get to that place maybe all my life. And my, my way in, even in, well, the, as far back as I can remember, was, was the idea of the imagination as, a, as, as, as the royal road to freedom. Uh, you could put it that way. The point that I think in my in my high school yearbook, I had a quote from um, Alice in Wonderland, which is um, um, sometimes I think of six impossible things before breakfast. You know, that 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 quote. Um, and that was in high school. I had that I had that conflict back then between freedom and constraint. And philosophy was a little bit of both. And science was a little bit of both. Um But that's one of the chief dualisms that have been battling in me for a long time. And so when I was introduced to Hillman, one of the, one of the things I was going to start thinking hard about in 1990 is, is back again. And this would be really fun to talk about, so we'll get there. Um, I, I had on my shelf a book by... Oh, uh, Maturana and Varela. But the one I'm thinking of was Varela, Roche, and Evan Thompson wrote a book called The Embodied Mind. And Varela was one of these complex systems people. He and Umberto Maturana were both Brazilians or Chileans, I'm not sure, but they were neuroscientists who were, who were really interested in um, uh, the complex systems theories 
because that's the kind of thinking that that is really pertinent to thinking about how the brain works. But the book they wrote back in 1990 with Varela and Eleanor Roche and Evan Thompson was called The Embodied Mind. And they and they had three things in there that knocked me out. I thought, boy, if they can put this together, then I want to know what they're up to. They had neuroscience, Heideggerian phenomenology, which I was really into for a few years, and Buddhism. And they were trying to make an argument for what they called the groundless ground. And I had a copy of that book that was so marked up and I was so excited about it at the same time that I was moving towards Hillman. And I had to put that away. I had to put the, the neuroscience away because it because it, it I couldn't do it. It would I couldn't do that and anything else at the same time because of the fundamentalist in mm-hmm. You see, the the, neuro, the neuroscientist in me, the hard scientist, the, the, the person who wants the truth, the absolute truth. Now, see, what they were up to, in fact, was to try to show that from a Buddhist point of view that, well, it's not all that absolute as a truth. It just supports a Buddhist notion of the illusion. We'll come back to this because it's popped right back up again because this is very current. Um, we'll, we'll do this in just a second. So, so for 25 or maybe even 30 years, however, whatever our date is now, I had to put all that to one side and, and go full on into Hillman and Corbin and Jung and poetry and the, and, and all that kind of study. And all of my books have had as one of their goals, uh, an attempt to, let's see, sort of exorcise the um, power of any fundamentalist thinking, whether it's scientific or religious or, I mean, pick your favorite, economic, right. uh, sociological. As it turns out, I mean, Corbin, that's, that's his, that's his, that's his whole shtick is, is to, from a religious and philosophical and spiritual point of view, is to undermine um, is to provide, in his case, a, a theological and philosophical um, um, framework for the undermining of any fundamentalism. And but it's but it but and and Hillman is also, I think, extremely good at doing that. So I spent all those years trying to exercise those demons of fundamentalism for myself. And here, this brings us to this year. You may have noticed that um, Michael Pollan, the renowned food writer, just published a book called Changing Your Mind, yeah. right? So <laughs> I was in college in the 70s, and I, 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 I once drove from Middletown to, Middletown to New London with 500 hits of mescaline on my lap, but I never once, I never once took any psychedelics. Um, because my mother had convinced me that I wasn't grounded enough in reality to do it. Uh, so as a consequence, I poisoned myself with hashish, but we don't have to, <laughs> we don't have to talk about that. But I never had any interest in psychedelics. I, and, and because I knew a bunch of people that had been really damaged by them, yeah. you know, because things got out of hand pretty quickly. Um, so I didn't think about psychedelics at all. However, 
I knew Michael Pollan's work, and I have a very good friend, Rachel Harris, who's written a wonderful book on ayahuasca. She's a, um, what's it called, Listening to Ayahuasca, highly recommended for anyone who's interested in that. Um, she's a, she's a, a clinical, uh, you know, practicing uh, therapist, um, or was for decades, and she's just written a book about the therapeutic uses of, of psychedelics, in particular ayahuasca. So she said, oh, I re- a year or two ago, she said, I ran into Michael Pollan at one of the, you know, psychedelic conferences in California. And I said, what the hell was he doing there? He's a food writer. She said, oh, no, no, he's writing a book about psychedelics. And I love Pollan's books on food. Uh, Oh, yeah, they're they're fabulous. Mm -hmm. And um, so I thought, that's weird and interesting. And um, then I saw that the book had come out, uh, talking with, with Rachel or something. So I thought, all right, sure, I'll look at it. He's a good writer. And I mean, it really did a number on me because with all this as a background, here I am, well, whatever I'm doing right now, I'm kind of in a, I'm kind of in a fallow period and I'm, I'm tired of writing about Hillman and Corbin and I haven't actually written much in quite some time, but I'm still interested in all these things and all that, all that stuff is bubbling up inside me. And I read Pond's book and it was as, it was as, um, it was it was incredible experience for me, and I'm still trying to digest um, because wow, and <laughs> it's, this is like being unconscious, you know. Uh, I don't know what I want to say about it. It brought all that stuff back from 1990 because the same people are still doing that work, and uh, he he writes about in particular. He writes about the work of Robin Carhart Harris, who's at University College in London. And he and his multiple colleagues uh, wrote a paper called The Entropic Mind, um, in which they do, I mean, things are so much more advanced now. It's so exciting. They did um, neuroimaging of people on psychedelics and um, in a normal state, and they they you know they they looked at how their wiring was firing, which is, which is kind of kind of exciting. I mean, I used to be really nervous about that kind of stuff thirty years ago. I don't want to know. I don't know. I don't want to know about that. I just want to have a soul, you know. I don't want to know about that. That's just gonna. You know, I pretty much don't feel that way anymore. My thirty years of therapy on myself have pretty much gotten rid of that. Although just the other day I was thinking, oh, he's coming back. The fundamentalist is coming back. Look out. Uh, my 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 move there is now very much what what Varela and Rosh and Evan Thompson were doing back then. My my curative mood now is is as much quasi-Buddhist as it is Corban and Hillman, though without the Corban and Hillman, I wouldn't have been able to make that move. But here's the here's the rub. So what I think they were up to in 1990 is sort of what Carhart Harris is up to now. Can I do this articulately? So here's how. Can I do this? Here's how you bring the two together. The two together, that is neuropsychology and uh, um, e- either the imagination 
which I prefer, or or a quasi-Buddhist notion of illusion. So the evolutionary story. Now I don't want to do the whole story. There's a but. Palm is beautiful at summarizing um, the work of some of these people. And he says, um, uh, I've got the quotes because I got a little presentation about this. But he says, the way many people think about the brain now is that it's, it's a, um, um, oh, it's a, um, it's a device for, um, it's like a, a predictive coding device. You don't actually use much of your sensations. You know, you glance over there and it's a door. You know, you don't need to do, you don't need to spend 20 minutes staring at it and looking at the, but your, your brain says, oh, door. And it registers that and you re go over and you reach and you grab a knob and pull it. And um, so, so the point, and, and if it's not a door, whoa! You know, all of a sudden, you're like, whoa, that's not a door. And then you got to look at it and you realize, you know, it's your wife or something. And, and, and it's all hell breaks loose. Um, the point is, your, your, your mind has evolved to um, do a lot of prediction so that it can focus on other things that are non-habitual. And also, this goes back to something I learned in college in the 70s, the idea of Umwelt, the world surround. All of the creatures on Earth, plants too, perhaps, have an Umwelt. They have a world in which they live. Um, bats can hear things that we can't. Dogs can see things that we can't. If you're a worm in the mud at the bottom of the ocean, you've got a very particular set of um, sensory devices, behaviors, and um, inputs and outputs, and you have a particular take on the world. We have a particular take on the world, and we're adapted so that we see the things that we see, um, and we don't see other things. We don't see things we don't need to see from from evolutionary point of view. And if you think about that long enough, there's a fellow who's a neuroscientist who's done a YouTube on this. His name is Anil Seth, and he says simply, all your experience is a hallucination with controls. Because that's what evolution crafts all these organisms to have. They don't experience the world. They experience their world. Um, they don't experience, you know, Kant's thing in itself. They experience the world in such a way that they can, in fact, get their genes into the next generation if you're a Darwinian. That's all you got to do is get your genes into the next generation. You do the Richard Dawkins thing. So you don't, you're not, we're not evolved to see truth. We're, we're, we are pragmatically designed. This is very much, if you're interested, you know, it's it's William James all over. It's it's an American Deweyan Jamesian pragmatism. That's what that's what evolutionary biology gets to you. So we don't see truth. We're not designed to see truth. We're designed to see illusions that work for us. Well, when I heard that phrase, you know, your your experience is a hallucination with controls. Well, what kind of controls? We well, got external controls like the table. 
and this screen. And then you got internal controls like, whoa, the spider that popped up in my brain, you know, or, uh, oh God, I thought of an elephant. I don't need an elephant. Well, that's good. I, you know, I've got my father in there. I got my mother in there. I got my wife in there. I got my daughter in there. I got my son in. I got, you know, then you, then you pull, then you pull Hillman and Jung in and you realize, oh, right. All these archetypal controls. And you start to think, wow, uh, whoa, everybody's experience is a little bit different. And then this plugs, you see, everything, reading, reading Pollan's book, I mean, most of the parts of my life kind of crystallized in a way that is there, I think, in most of my books, but not explicitly. I had a history professor named Ed Krantz who blew me away back in the 70s um, because he was doing something that was really unusual then, but now seems... I have to say, obvious. But I spent 30 years trying to convince me and other people that it was true. And meanwhile, you know, there's this whole other section of culture that said, well, of course, we, we knew that all along. What Ed was saying was by, 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 by studying the ancient Greek texts, he came, he was doing a kind of historical phenomenology. And he was pretty much alone in doing it. All his colleagues, they didn't buy it. But what he was saying was, look, the Greeks experienced the world differently than we do. And we I've written about that many times. Um, and at the time, he said, there's nothing normal or normative about our experience, by which he meant Western industrial culture experience that other cultures at other times have literally experienced the world differently than us. Well, that's just a cultural version of the Umwelt concept. Mm -hmm. And and you find this in Pollan's book because it's it's well known among neuropsychologists now that your your literal phenomenal experience of the world can be altered, not just by your surroundings, but even by your own uh, high-level cognitive functioning. Not, I mean, I somewhere, somewhere Pollen talks about this, that, I mean, it's, I've been trying to, I've been saying this for years with absolutely no data, but apparently they actually have data now that your ideas about the world change your experience of the world. Certainly your language does. So so the culture that you're in changes the experience of the world. So I've been trying to argue for ages that Krantz was right. And of course he is. He's, he's right for all these reasons. So bingo, that suddenly snaps right into the story as Pollen tells it for, of modern neuropsychology. And and so so if 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 Anil Seth's vision is 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 right and it seems to me to be so um well i don't even want to say right but if it's if it's um if it's pregnant if it's fecund if it's if it's full of life and ideas um which i think it surely is then that 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 your experience is a hallucination with controls then that's that's a way of 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 articulating a buddhist vision of the world which is that is all kind of illusion. I mean, rocks will kill you, but they are nonetheless, in some sense, you know, illusory. And if that kind of vision, if, if you adopt that kind of vision of cognitive pragmatism, then it undercuts any possible fundamentalism. 
Well, let me let me jump jump in have. here because you're. This gets into some weird, I think, language. Sure does. When we yeah, when when we say <laughs> illusory, it it occurs to me that through your book you're talking about abstraction, concrete literalism. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, okay. You know, yeah, yeah. illusory, not. Yeah. It, it. I just want to clarify this part. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Boy. How? Yeah. No. No. It's a. It's a. It's a language. Pr- it's well. It's a. It's a problem. Problem. Which like because we could talk it. about the concept. We could talk about. I actually I like what you were saying about concrete and and um, literalism, yeah. but but abstraction certainly because illusory meaning that it's almost like a gap filling, and we our experience. We have the experience of our experience experiencing the yeah, world. We, yeah, we do. And, and I, I think to Anil Seth's point, the thing I like about his work a lot is the, is the multiplicity of selves that he talks about. Yeah, and and that, yeah. that stuff really blows my mind. And, and I don't know if this may kind of jumble the mash that we're creating here, but when it comes to pollen, what, what really strikes me about that whole area of neuroscience right now is in particular the work that they're doing with the default mode network. Yeah. Because then we're, and I don't know where you stand on this, and I don't want to jump too far ahead, but I am interested when we when we begin to look at consciousness, because you have that that side of the, you know, here we are in this duality that we're kind of playing around with. That There's one side of consciousness that's like, okay, the, the brain the material, the matter of the brain is creating this experience. And, and, and then, of course, then, then we have to think about how does hallucination work with regard to that. Or there's the other side of things where the idealists hang out and say, ah, we're in mind and it's a filter. And so I wonder, <laughs> I, I wonder where we can go with that. Oh, no, I hear you. Um, I, I no, I hear you. Um, what do I want? I, I mean, I haven't come down. I haven't come down on that. Um, mm-hmm. Except, except my 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 inclination. Yeah. See, see, see the the the, the scientist has to keep looking for something solid and true and that's their job uh, and I don't even don't even know how to see I am well, uh, this is really hard um except it's not really hard it's obvious um there's a part of me that just doesn't give a shit anymore and it's certain <laughs> no, no, here, uh, no i mean i mean i guess i mean that really substantively yeah uh um you know a zen master would just smile and say i don't care <laughs> you know I, I don't care um and this this I, and i and i mean that in a real substantive way at a certain point I mean, it kind of doesn't matter. It's really great. I love it. I get really excited about it. And but if you let it take over your life, uh, I mean, good things could happen. Yeah. I mean, good, but but you shouldn't get anxious. But um, 
here, this, this, let me do an anecdote. So we're sitting around with a bunch. This was back in the 80s. We're sitting around. I'm, I'm a young philosophical type. And we're sitting in a room and there's a bunch of old philosophers, this is all guys, you know, there's like a 90 year old ex-philosophy professor and a 70 year old philosophy professor and a couple of young guys. And the young guys were all, oh, I'm so anguished about, you know, morality and whether the self exists. I forget about what, what we were anguished about, but we were really anguished and looking for answers. And the old guys just kind of looked at each other and they all kind of said in one voice, you know, we just don't care about that anymore. <laughs> and I thought, wow, <laughs> you know, and they said, we're, I don't know, just, and, you know, Alfred North Whitehead, I think, is the one that said philosophical problems never get answered. They just get ignored, you know, moves, <laughs> um, you know. Culture, culture moves to some other set of questions. You know, another thousand years, people will be anguished about these things again. But right now, eh, we don't really care about them anymore. Yeah, but isn't and, there something developmental about that where, you know, I hear people who are older yeah. that that you say, okay, so what would you tell your younger self? And they would say, ah, yeah. don't push so hard. Ah. But then you're like, wait a second. you that's the, that's the inflation and the passion and the intensity and the curiosity. Yeah, no, it is. No, the, no that's, that's right. And I and I want to you know, yeah the problem is that not only am I a fundamentalist but I'm a totalist and I want all of it. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want the whole thing, and I'm not sure you can have you can have you're, yeah you can have the whole thing and de developmentally you know you can have being a young guy when you're a young guy and you can have <sighs> what I I guess what I what I want to say is that at a certain point. Um, um, if one finds oneself being too um, um, single-minded, you should have the to the point where it's becoming um, uh, problematic in some sense to be left wide open, that you have the ability to put that set of tools down. Yeah. I mean, this, this, I mean, maybe this is just the, the, the simple, I mean, but then you read the Zen masters and you think, oh, it actually is pretty simple when you yeah. come down to it. So, so we worry about the neuropsychological, you know, which I do analysis of human person, which I do think is utterly fascinating. But now I can, at the end of the book say, you know, I don't actually have to integrate that with the rest of my life before I go live the rest of my life. I mean, I think when I was younger, I had the sense that I can't actually live until I figure this out. I can't have a life until I figure out how to live. And I mean, I, I don't know how many other people have that problem, but I absolutely had that problem. Can't can't go live. Can't, I too busy. Can't go live because I got to figure these problems out. Because I need to be. I need to be thinking. I need to figure things out so that I don't live wrong. I mean, and in some sense, I mean, yeah, you do need some rules, and you know, uh, 
but I just don't have that feeling anymore. And part, and I've used this metaphor um, many, many times, and it's actually a lousy metaphor. So I should come up with the better one. But I, but I want to have a really big toolbox with every possible kind of tool, and I kind of want to know how to use them all. But I don't feel any need to have a master tool, you know, <laughs> that that will answer every question. No, I, I, I get that. That clicks. I think that's a you know, good I mean, metaphor. Seems that's that what, makes that's a lot of what, sense. That's what, that's what Hillman did for me. Yeah. You know, in my, in my, in my best uh, moments, I can say, you know, now I, I don't feel driven to the exclusion of all these other really important things like my children, my wife, my garden, you know, to do this one thing. And I no longer... I no longer believe intellectually that it's possible for human beings to have a theory of everything. Well, Hillman, of course, H- H- Hillman's slippery, right? I mean, he's poking holes in everything that you're doing. And so you never get, you never can tangibly grasp it. There's nothing to hang on to, really. It's just a deconstructionism on some level that's always poking. No, no, and that's, but that's interesting. <laughs> It's interesting to, to to say that Hillman deconstructs things because he does, and yet um, there's a bad kind of deconstruction. Right. I, I'm not. I, I don't know Derrida well enough. Lord knows I don't. Um, but but I do sense um, that um, there's a there's a there are brands of deconstruction that are wholly nihilistic. Yes. And yeah. 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 Absolutely. Not, you do not find that in well, so you certainly don't find it in Corbin, who who also is kind of a postmodernist in many yeah. ways. Um, you do not find that kind of nihilism in Hillman. What you what I find in Hillman is what I'm really trying to think hard about now is just joy and exuberance at the at the diversity, the plurality, the beauty and the potential joy on top of all that pathologizing, which he never lets go of. Right. And, and that seems to me to be just really, really pragmatically useful minute to minute in your day. And that's what I'm trying to think hard about now in such a way as to convey that joyful exuberance in the midst of catastrophe to other people. We need that now. What occurs to me there is that you, in your treatment of Corbin, you seem to reference a lot of the frozen aspect of the divine. And I, when I think about or, or trying to avoid the frozen aspect. Yeah. That's uh, that's yeah. sorry. Yeah. So yeah. the the when I think about things like a killer sense of humor and a a passion and a curiosity and a sense of wonder and wonderment and so in both of the in your work certainly in Hillman and Corbin there there is a there is a religious undertone which I, I yeah. think may treat part of the nihilism that that kind of keeps it rich and unfolding and moving as opposed to stale and frozen and static and and dead. Yeah, yeah, and 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 that that's so those think those those um, 
those forces are sort of coming together in me now in a, in a slightly different way, partly, partly because of pollen, um, but well. also because of a kind of resurgence of my biological interests. Um, um, because well, as I said, long ago, you know, <laughs> some time ago, um, what it really attracted me to biology um, was this diversity, you know, yeah. and, and the just inexhaustible wonder. I mean, being a microscopist, it's uh, um, uh, th that helps, you know. Because well, what, you, what did you what did you love about the insect under the microscope? Oh, uh, it's just well, it's it, let's see. It's beautiful and complicated and puzzling. I mean, it's beautiful. Uh, I spent, you know, I sp spent the last 14 years working in a, in a, a very boring job looking through microscopes at, 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 at spores. And yet, now I kind of miss it. I'm retired now. Um, I kind of miss it, as boring and repetitive as it was, because what I was looking at was essentially surprising and beautiful all the time. You never knew exactly what you're going to see. Um, and, and that's, yeah, I don't know. You get the, I mean, if... if that and and you see there's 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 more than there's more than that and that's one of the things that i'd like to be able to articulate for people who are who are not biologists i i would say to the my my young colleagues at work you know just every day wasn't well, biology just fantastic how is it possible that not everybody is a biologist because it's <laughs> so it's because it's so beautiful and it's all right there and it, and all you got to do is bend down and look at anything and it just so so one of the things um that that happens when you when you study biology and and uh, yeah well i have several i have several ideas crowding in at once but you bring once you know a little bit of biology you bring to the world this knowledge um, which enriches your perceptions to an incredible degree, and and and, and I don't whatever whatever subject matter it is, if you were lucky enough to go to college, um, or ever, or if you ever be if you ever fell in love with anything in the world, it could be film, it could be dance, it could be anything. Um, I'll stay away from falling in love with another human being because that's kind of particular and it's perfectly, you know, it's right there. I mean, think of Dante and Beatrice. So he's, right. he's right there. Um, but let's stay away from that for the moment because I'm, I'm thinking of the world of culture and science. If you've ever fallen in love with anything, what you're partly falling in love with is a way of seeing, but not just seeing. I mean, that's that's, you know, privileging sight seeing in a, quotations a, yeah 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 you, it's it you 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 you've you've fallen in love with a way of engaging with the world mm -hmm. i mean mm -hmm. people who know film really well are forever saying oh remember the scene in you know where so and so and they bring all the emotion to this reminds me of the scene and you know and they just they're in they're in that world and yeah. so everything you know relates to that well so you don't want to know just film and you don't want to know just biology and you you know, 
But if you if you were to know a little bit <laughs> of lots, so you reach into this. Well, see, tool, that's where a toolbox as a as a as a metaphor breaks down completely. But also, let's see, I don't know, a VR headset, you know. <laughs> um, and it maybe it's Anil Seth's different persons, uh -huh. you know. You're one kind of person when you're making breakfast. You're a different kind of person when you're sending the kids off. To, all these, I've I've tried to articulate that for years, and I'm not even all that good at noticing in myself. But we are different people at different times of the day. Not, I mean, let alone sleeping and waking. That's completely crazy. Mm -hmm. But at different times of the day, you're using, I mean, when I'm sitting on the tractor, it's not like doing this. It's really rather different. And I think I used to, I used to feel very much that, well, you know, I should be the same person all the time. Uh, and I should be really sure that that I that I'm sort of in control of who these people are and what they're doing. Otherwise, otherwise, what what might happen? And, yeah. and Hillman says, "Hey, <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's don't keep doing that to yourself, man. You because know? we're in Maybe the world just... of specialization. Yeah, and it's too constraining for me. Well, that here's something that really worries me. So I'm sitting here now thinking about. I really ought to write another book. And as my wife has been telling me for 20 years, can't you write something a little more popular so we can have some money? <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I keep trying it and it doesn't happen. And she said, well, you know, you really ought to get another job or, or maybe you write a really popular book. And, Oof, boy. Okay. All right. Now she's got me. Um, so, but you know, and yes, of course she's right. And, and I kind of would like to anyway, but not, but popular in the sense of really useful mm -hmm. to as many people as possible. And one of the, one of the things that I had back in my mind as I'm sitting down trying to think about something which is really useful for people to engage in the world which is full of catastrophe and is going to be, as long as I can foresee, going to be full of catastrophe. And I am not quite as upset about it as I would have been in the past um, for, you know, pretty good quasi-Buddhist reasons. I actually can't control it very much, but I might be able to nudge a few people. Anyway, so I want to write a book which is useful for people, real people. And then I'm thinking about that just before we got on here. And I was listening to a podcast, which is taking taking over my mind. There's another thing that's going to destroy all of us. I mean, there's so many good podcasts, you know, it's just hopeless. And I was listening to a podcast about, oh, God, dating apps. And it was, oh, it was awful. I think it was Nick Bolton talking to, um, what's her name, about a new movie about Tinder and all those things. And, I, and, and it kept rubbing my nose in the fact that, Christ, I can't, I don't know. How, I can talk to my children. They're both in their, you know, they're both, Ben's over 30 and Amy's just a little under 30. I know my children pretty well and I can talk to them. But, wow, these new kids. Whoosh! I mean, people are just. My own children are grow, grew up in a world that's so different, and and you know, you know. So so anyway, my I've made it fairly clear to myself that my audience can't be all of humanity. And then you always, you know, I mean, who am I writing for? I'm, you know, I don't want to write for 
old white men. I don't want to, you know, I'm an old white man. And, and all those things, you know, would genuinely and legitimately are really, really important. So, so I, so the, the, the take home message from myself was just narrow it down. Just narrow it down. You're not writing. You're not writing. You know the history of the world. You're not writing a critique of the theory pure of reason. everything. <laughs> yeah, you're not doing exactly, exactly. And and there's the fundamentalist physicist philosopher spiritualist in me who <laughs> wants to write a theory of everything and hand it to the world and say, here, just do this and it'll all be fine. Everything. Um, yeah. Yeah. Look, John, I brought something for show and tell, which is no good, no good for a podcast. But see, here's my moss. I have, <laughs> I have, I have moss. And hang I on. bet you didn't. Hold, Tom, hang that up. Hold that up. Okay, let me get a photo of this. I got to see you with your moss. It's, it's my moss. <laughs> I have, I have, I have three more of these. Um, and and these these little pointy things are the sporophytes. And did you know that moss have sperm? It's incredibly exciting. I didn't know that until a little while ago. They have these curly little sperm, and 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 that's why they have to stay wet because because um, because the sperm need um, fluid to 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 swim in, you know, and and. Um, and so these are these the mosses and other bryophytes are um, are ancestors of the very first land plants, and so they still needed water because if you're a if you're an ocean going plant, you can release your sperm and they will swim away and find their little eggs. But if you're one of the first land plants, you haven't figured out how to how to reproduce um, without water, and so you have to stay in very moist environments so that your little um, so that your sperm can find their little eggs. I didn't know that until just a little while ago. It's extremely exciting. 400 and f at least 400 million years old, very successful. Yeah, I mean, you, there's, I mean, see, and that's the thing. There's nothing in the world that you can touch. I was just thinking, you know, that if I, if I ever teach again, what, I mean, one really cool thing, what, what is it that, um, I've got the quotes somewhere. Charles Olson, in a letter to um, to Ed Dorn, says, "You know, one one way into the world is to pick just one thing and study it until you know absolutely everything about it." And I've got I've got some qualms with this, but but take it as a it's, it's something he said, um, and, and study it. I he says, I don't care what it is. It could be pemmican or Patterson or barbed wire, but you take one thing and you study it. It could take till you know everything there is humanly to know about. It could take 14 years, could take longer, but when you're done, you're in. And I'm not quite sure precisely what he meant by you're in. You're in, yeah. Uh, Poof, but, but you're, you're in, man. <laughs> You're you're enlightened, and 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 isn't that a great fantasy for all of us? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, and and there's some there's there's absolutely something to that. And I was thinking that if I if I were to teach a, a course again, that would be a thing to do at the beginning of the course. Say, okay, everybody pick something. <laughs> I guess an object. Uh, You'd have to you'd have to constrain it somehow, but everybody pick an object, an object that you love or like or something, and just um, do your do do forty pages on it. Tell me everything you can. Yeah, to you me know, though, like that, a paper clip. 
that whole thing wire. is it's it's basically what we did in our dissertations when we learned how to we learned a process and yeah. so it's not about the content it's about because so, so maybe you're in means that now you can do that wherever you want now you can do that wherever yeah yeah i think i think that's right and with, with me with me it was the penis of fleas penis and sperm uh, is what uh yeah, <laughs> moss yeah, sperm yeah, no, and right. flea penis yeah 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 <laughs> i mean yeah no that's that's right it could have been it could have been barbed wire and the history thereof yeah. uh the, his, the history of god knows what you know and and yeah there's yeah so 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 there is that i i also i mean there's there's a there's a tension there too, and I'm not sure what to do with it because and I've there's a paper that I read when I was at Schumacher last year, and I guess I'm going to read it again in San Francisco. Um, there's another approach though too, which is like um, uh, Dogen, Dogen Zenji, the the 12th 13th century um, um, Jap Zen monk, Japanese Zen monk, um, said. Oh, no, I can't remember the quote, but enlightenment. Is is this the letting, uh, is this the accident? No, uh. no, it's um uh, the no, it's um illusion or delusion is 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 going out and looking at all the ten thousand things and trying to understand them. This is this is even close to the quote, but it gets the idea. Um, that's delusion is to looking at all these things. And, Enlightenment is letting them become enlightened, and 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 you you are just receptive of their enlightenment. You know, is letting them. Exp so so there's so there's always an interplay. There's there's the there's the zooming in um, uh, on 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 the things, but part of that has to be responding to them. And I think that's 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 always part of the scientific view. Um, you, you, you know, you're 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 not running roughshod over your your object of study, like uh, you know the 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 the, the brain. Um, you're you're in, you're interrogating it in a certain way. Um, there is, I mean, and this is something that it seems to me, at least personally, it's really. Uh, important to think about there's there does seem to be um there's there's a difference between like being a naturalist and being a scientist or there's a difference between being um how do you say, being a being a um <sighs> Being an observer and being a controller is all I'm trying to get at. There's a difference between a kind of science which is discovery and a kind of science which is controlling. It's it's part of my experience at Santa Fe, you know, that, oh, my God, they've got biology. I'm interested in it because it's beautiful. They're interested in it because they can use it as a tool of war, you know. And, and of course, we're right in the middle of that now yeah, in a world are. where where it's just technology, and and that we have become the subjects of our own tools. This, and so, this, so those, uh, you you bring something up. Uh, sorry to interrupt. It, it, no, the question that I had earlier, and maybe this is going too far afield, but is it compatible? Because what you're talking about are basically all these developments where we're talking about kind of onboarding software into the human being 
and of course, then later on downloading self into some kind of software program. Do, do you think that those things are going to be compatible? Well, wait, be, be precise. And that I push it back. Which things? Do Which you think things? that my consciousness will be able to merge with oh. some kind of computer program? No, no, I don't. Uh, 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 but, but let's see what I mean by that. Um, uh, pollen uh, quotes somebody, and I'm not sure he even identifies the person, but one of the psychonauts. Um, and I think it was a beautiful, um, a, a beautiful suggestion. He said, you know, re with reference to this idea that all our experiences are. Um, <laughs> um, hallucinations with controls mm -hmm. uh, this this fellow said imagine that i could switch my consciousness with yours right now with just the two of us you know we're not we're not comparing a neanderthal and a modern human i'm not comparing someone from the brazilian amazon with a person from new york city just you and me right now sitting right here if we could switch our consciousnesses this guy says my suspicion is that if we did that both of us would suddenly say whoa wow i feel really stoned because he says, you know, because you've got your history, you got your body, you got your background, you have your ideas. Now, what, what, under those circumstances, I don't know what you're actually switching. Um, but, the, but the point, right. it seems to me to be right on, is that the particular hallucinations that I'm seeing and experiencing right now are peculiar to me and they are different from anyone else's ever. So that saying, well, let's do the same thing with a computer. Mm, man, that's got a, I don't think so. Well, that's I mean, inherently really, dualistic. That's the, yeah. I mean, there is no, there is no, there is no consciousness, which is, see, that's really hard to, there is no independent floating disembodied yeah. consciousness, which can in fact be switched between me and you, right. you know, it's one of those. Yeah. And but is so, it, isn't that because this is a, this is a, 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 a continuation or an extension of a reductive materialist perspective yeah. that says like, yeah, I, think I so. can reduce and quantify and, and, and transmit my meanness into some other vessel. Yeah. No, that's, I mean, I, I, you know, the philosopher in me loves these questions. I, and, and <laughs> so, so, well, I mean, yeah. So the other part of, of, of Carhart Harris's um, entropic mind and the, the, the default mode network business is that, um, in the absence of the default network, mode network, your ego just disappears, right? right? You get to the far end of that spectrum, and you're just you're just gone, you know. <laughs> and so, 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 so there you go. So maybe if you were to download your, I don't even know what that would mean, but right, I, I can't imagine. But I can't imagine a lot of things, but I can't even imagine how such a thing would be attempted. But if you were to download your consciousness into some silicon replica, you wouldn't know it because your ego would just disappear in the same sense it disappears if you're on an extreme yeah. trip, yeah. you know. 
You're yeah, just gone. Yeah. It's like dying. It's, it's, it's equivalent to dying. You know, you're gone. And so there is no continuity. It's kind of miracle. I mean, in fact, that's the, that's the whole question. The miracle of ego continuity what on earth makes me think that, that that I am that person from 1963? What what is that? I guess you know there's a biological continuity and it's well the brain yeah so there's I mean people have been talking about this since you know since the pre-Socratics um, but now we're in an interesting place where it may be possible and Lord knows you know if it can be done it will be done even even if the governments or some or some um, you know ethics committee of the AAAS says well you never should do this study in you know Afghanistan or whatever, is going to do anything that can be done technically. Oh, in a hundred years or 500 years, if there's anybody still around, um, there'll be people messing with, you know, little, with your little screwdrivers in, the, in, in our heads and, and seeing what happens if you try to transfer somebody to some, something else. And I have no idea. Um, but the, 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 and, and in the, and in the old days, this would cause these discussions would have caused great anxiety in me mm. of the sort that a fundamentalist Christian, for instance, might well feel. I love oh that you God. said that because the the word going through my mind is this is apocalyptic conversation yeah. that we're we're essentially talking about when the apocalypse manifests. When the apocalypse comes, ah. <laughs> so, so yeah, ex exactly. So what I was going to say, now I have three things, um, what was, I do no longer have, I think, although when push comes to shove, maybe I will, but I think I no longer have that, that fear. It's a fear of death or personal dissolution, but it's also more than that. It's like a philosophical fear that I don't really exist as a, as a soul, you know, mm. I mean, from Corbin's point of view, there is a, there is an eternal soul in each of us, although he's sort of careful to point out, well, it's really not your ego. So, you know, maybe, maybe you won't recognize it. Uh, maybe there is no continuity. Um, but I do understand that that anxiety that you, that I used to have. And I, and I think it's that I suspect that that may be part of the anxiety that drives fundamentalist um, uh, um, um, antipathy towards science because science doesn't give a shit about your, you know, perfectly happy to play with your ego and screw right. around with the fetus. And, you know, let's just see what happens if you plug these wires into this little fetus, you know, and it's just curiosity, you know, which does, yeah, which is problematic. Um, but mm. as, as far as the apocalypse goes, I, th there's a, there's oh maybe you can help i have been trying to track this down or perhaps a podcast listener could track this down i have two little anecdotes one i'll tell you first it's from um um india scene afar which was a memoir done by kathleen rain i don't know when she was young she went to india for the first time upper class brit and 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 one of the founders of the temenos academy in england um and she was over there and talking about nuclear catastrophe with some some Indian wise person, Hindu, I suppose. And she was 
just terribly upset about the you know the possibility of humanity wiping itself off the face of the earth then this hindu wise man said well you know would it would it really be such a bad thing and she was just dumbstruck and of course he's thinking of kalpas and infinite universes and infinite you know and we just occupy the sort of hindu ancient indian vision of the true infinity of the universe whereas a lot of us come from a come from a christian point of view where there's one earth and there was adam and eve and they're the center of everything from the hindu point of view if we blow up the earth it's like Eh, it's not that big a problem. As Kathleen Rain says, well, I'm enough of a Britisher that I don't think I can adopt that, um, but, but okay. And then there's this wonderful anecdote written by a travel writer who was traveling on a bus in Peru. I do not know what the book was or who the travel writer was. If anybody can tell us, it would be wonderful. Pretty sure it was a British travel writer. And I was quickly reading this book. And this guy is on one of those terrifying buses going over the Peruvian Andes that, you know, occasionally, every, you know, every 20th bus goes over the edge and everybody dies, you know. And, and so they're on one of these buses and he's completely terrified as they're zooming around these, you know, 3,000 foot cliffs. And there's chickens and goats and, you know, and all the, all the indigenistas are on there. And nobody's very worried at all. And the bus is careening from the right to the left. And he's just terrified, and he's starting to whimper. And, and next to him is some um, you know, Marxist revolutionary woman. And she looks at him with disdain and disgust and says, Ugh, you Westerners, you bourgeois Westerners, all you're ever worried about is your own puny little life. And he just sort of, wow, well, that's intense. <laughs> You know, because she's thinking about the historical march of, you know, Marxism and the indigenistas. Well, they're either, you know, they're either doing their rosaries or they're doing their indigenous or their combination of the two. And they know God's in control and they don't have any, you know, they're not worried. But we, we're the ones with these egos that we're just terrified that we might not exist. We might die sometime. I know I certainly grew up that way because my mother was like that. And so my, in my own background, I know for a fact, although I didn't really learn it and internalize it until many years later, she was too afraid of death to live. And so as all the wise men tell you, you cannot learn to live until you accept death because they go together. Duality. <laughs> I mean, it's unity. It just looks like two really different things. And I sort of think, and as I, I'm fully aware, uh, when push comes to shove, perhaps I will be afraid of death. But I had a funny little experience, uh, I think it was two or three years ago now. Uh, I, I gave a talk in San Francisco, and they took me out afterwards. And yeah, I do have a tendency to drink rather a lot on occasions. And, and so I try not to. And so I did my Friday night talk and my all day Saturday thing. And at the end of one of those, I mean, you are just completely exhausted, 
And they took me out to dinner, and so it was more talking, and I started to drink, and I had a couple of beers and a glass of wine, and I fell asleep that night, and I thought I was never going to wake up. And so the next day, my children and my wife and I are driving around San Francisco, because both the kids live in San Francisco, and or live in California, and I'm sitting in the front seat, and I'm thinking, God, you know, I don't feel very good. In fact, I feel really bad. In fact, I actually think I'm having a heart attack. And I thought, huh, I didn't, didn't bother me. I mean, I was just like, wow, you know, my chest hurts like hell. I can hardly breathe. And I thought, well, if I were to die right now, it would really be upsetting for the children. Perhaps I should go to an emergency room. <laughs> So I said, we should go to an I was not nervous. I was not upset. I just thought, huh, I might be dying right now, and it would really upset the children if I did. So we went to the emergency room, and man, they had me in and yeah, hooked quick. up to wires in about seven seconds. And as it turns out, I wasn't having a heart attack. I had um, uh, pericarditis. Who knows why? Nobody knows why you get perigarditis. But there, I wasn't, I just had no, you know, it was like, huh, I could die now. It was okay. And so on the basis of actual data, I sort of think I don't have that. And I had it for hmm. so long. Uh, maybe I get it from my father. He didn't have it. We tried to, we tried to reassure him because he knew he was dying. Dad, you know, there might be life after death. He says, no, there isn't. He says, I don't, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to do it because I got all these things to do. Just completely poof. Just, just nothing. Not, just not, not a word, not a care in the world. He just didn't want to die because he still had shit he wanted to do, you know? So maybe I, maybe I finally flipped over to his side. But it's because, and it's a funny thing. I mean, it's, I'm tr I'm trying to come up with a title for whatever I want to write next, and I and I I seem to be stuck on on, on a particular line from um, 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 uh, Frank O'Hara: uh, "Grace to be born and live as variously as possible." My podcast is as variously as possible, and I thought, well, the next essay could be "Grace to be born," because that's the way I feel. Grace to be born and live as variously as possible. And if I keel over tomorrow, it's been fantastic, including all the parts that were horrible, you know, because it's just all so interesting. And I just, and it makes me, and look, look, so I'm a, I'm, 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 you know, sort of white male solidly well we're sort of lower middle class but we got a nice house nice property we're never going to starve to death unless the apocalypse happens and the neighbors come to get our garden i don't have a big gun um you know so we're we're happy uh, you know so so i so i don't want to be too happy because much of the world isn't very happy um but still if you people say and my daughter said when she went to Ecuador and worked, worked, uh, you know, in a little tiny village, she went to, <laughs> she said her first take on, it turned out not to be as true as she thought it was at first um, because, yeah, things are complicated. But she says, these people have nothing and they're the happiest people I've ever seen in my life. And you hear similar things about destitute people in other cultures. You really don't need... I here I sit with all my toys and my tools and I have the little money and you know so who is who am I to say but 
if you've got a little bit of a little bit of the things that you need, a roof over your head and food and a little stability, the world is so amazing. And you can have an effect on little bits of it. And, and it all seems to be, you just have to love something. Another person, moss, the penis of fleas, you have to <laughs> love something. You know, if you can find something that you love. Of course, you know, I mean, I heard a podcast the other day where they were pointing out that back in the day, people used to say to college graduates, oh, just go find something you love. And apparently it's not that easy anymore. I don't know. I guess it isn't. Well, it's um, it's not professionally speaking. And part of the issue is how specialized I think. I mean, I, I have you know families and kids I work with. They are wanting somebody to declare a major when you're a senior in high school. They they want you to go into yeah. school knowing. Yeah. And I thought, where the hell is the variation yeah. in your learning? And when do you get to take all those classes that you you stumble and fall into shit as opposed to yeah. intend well, on everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, but on the other, okay, so that's interesting to hear. But on the other hand, aren't there people, and you can tell me, because I don't know, um, aren't there people who are making the argument that everybody should take at least a year off and go volunteer before they go to college? Isn't I, that out there too? I hope so. Yeah, because that's a, that's the sort of thing that I, you know, I taught college for a long time. And I got to say, a lot of those, and but I haven't taught uh, for a number of years and things have changed really rapidly. I, yes, they I, I, I hear that they have. Yeah. Um, but most of those, many of those kids, there was, there's no way they were ready to go to college. They really, they really could have, I mean, I, you know, I went to college when I was, however one is, how old one is when he gets out of high school, but it wasn't until I was 30 and had the wonderful opportunity to go back um, that I really was focused you know, I mean, really focused and not neurotic and crazy and screwed up. <laughs> and I just don't. I, I think that in a in a in in a in a great world, and, and and this really this is sort of interesting to me because I I'm finding that what I one of the things I would like to write about is education, um, because I loved teaching. I mean, there's parts of it that are horrible, and there's an, and the the um, the administrative and academic all that stuff is horrible. But I really miss the kids, you know, or students of any age. I taught older students too for quite a few years, and they were even better, if anything. Um, but I think it's pretty obvious that in our country, at least, we've got to rethink the whole thing, the whole educational system. And I would go all the way back to, to, to Yvonne Illich in the 60s, you know, de-schooling society, that, that, that some of those ideas um, ought to be pertinent. Um, I don't see any problem with teaching kids how to code, but they also ought to learn how to play in the mud and make bricks and, you know, I mean, get as much breadth of experience um, in, in, in a variety of cultures and languages. I mean, even within your own city, in your own city, there's cultures. I, I want to go religious for a second because the the line in Genesis that's keep that keeps going through my mind as we're talking is this kind of the 
and, and look, I know that it's not, I'm not meaning to talk about religion as in a literal Dude. perspective, right? Yeah, but, yeah. but when we talk about Genesis as this kind of evolving consciousness of human beings, and in particular, the dominion that, you know, people are to have over the world, plants and animals, mm-hmm. that, that I think is, you know, because we're, we're supposed to work our asses off to be able to go go above get somehow get above reality um and and be able to control our environment which i i can't help but think that's at the root of a lot of the anxiety because we keep trying to get out of the world yeah yeah Yeah. uh actually agree completely with that um the I mean, there's lots of ways to read Genesis, um, but the way it has been typically um, um, read is that we're supposed to have dominion. And it doesn't work that way. Um, And the whole, one of the things that, is being, I was going to say needs to be, but is being rethought is um, (laughs) uh, uh, it's one of the topics I want to talk about explicitly at some point in the book that I'm thinking of writing (laughs) Um, is the whole dominion and power dynamic. Mm-hmm. And to bring it back, to, to, to bring it, I mean, to, to make it religious in a, in a, in a uh, literal sense, Henri Corbin is really good about this um, because his deconstruction of Christianity um, is has has lots to recommend it. Um, and one of the reasons for that is kind of, he doesn't get rid of the idea of hierarchy entirely. Um, but he, he, which I think should be done. Um, I, for, for good ecological scientific reasons, as well as for sociological and moral reasons, um, the, the whole conception of hierarchy needs to be rethought. And people have been rethinking that uh, for quite a long time um, um, in philosophy and in all the all the areas of academia, um, but one of the things that Corbin emphasizes um, above all else is well, one way he puts it is mystical poverty. <laughs> um, the reason that it comes up right now is because I was just looking at well, somebody sent an email about Corbin and mentioned um, his his little piece theology by the lakeside. Um, which is very Christian, very religious, very mystical and spiritual. And he sort of de- deconstructs the ego 
um, in, the, in these very short passages, he, uh, in a way that's sort of characteristic of him, he deconstructs the, he deconstructs time and uh, I guess I would even, yeah, he certainly deconstructs the power hierarchy of human beings um, in favor of an angelic hierarchy, I guess. So he doesn't get rid of hierarchy altogether. Um, but he says, the best we can hope for is mystical poverty, that anything, anytime we try to be dominant over anything, um, human or natural, we're going to go off wrong. Now, this gets complicated really fast, and Corbin is kind of a good... Uh, provides an opportunity to think about those things. He liked... Do you mind if I do the Shiite thing for a minute? Please. He liked, he liked Shiite Islam for, for many reasons, but one of the reasons he liked Shiite Islam was because of the doctrine of the hidden imam. Uh, and my, my Korban and my Islam is a little rusty these days, but I think it was the 12th imam is the hidden imam. That is to say, the, the hidden imam is occulted, uh, went to mm, heaven or someplace where he, she, it cannot be accessed and is essentially hidden and inaccessible. Um, so the, the source of all power and authority is inaccessible. And for Corbin, this is very much the um, position of the Holy Spirit in Christianity. So that Corbin's version of Christianity, uh, let's see, I'm trying to reconstruct these things. It's been a while. He's a great fan of Joachim of Fiore and of um, the, the Gospel of John um, emphasizing a theology of the Holy Spirit and the theology revolving around Pentecost um, so that each individual has their own Christ or their own angel. He's got an angelic uh, Christology as opposed to an incarnational Christology mm -hmm. because he thinks if God actually enters the world, well, that kind of anchors God in the literal world where he speaks equally to everyone. And that sets up this knowledge and power relationship, which is really problematic. You really want your you really need to have, this sounds really paradoxical, which it is, it and I'm be. not going to try to unpack the paradox right now. Corbin calls it the paradox of monotheism, but believe me, we'll get back to where we started in 30 seconds, because if God isn't essentially hidden and instead appears as a historical and sociological authority, then politics takes over and all hell breaks loose. Then you get the institutional church and you get priests who tell you what God said and you become 
you, the believer, become subject to the hierarchy of the church. And as Illich argues, um, the church is the archetype of all Western institutions and governments. And that's why um, the West <laughs> lost its way, Corbin thinks, um, because schools... Uh, governments, uh, uh, um, think of businesses, they're all modeled on the hierarchical structure of the church. And so it's all, <laughs> it's all the, for, the, the fault of incarnational um, Christology. Corbin says, you can even see that in, Shia, in the history of the Shiites. Everything's fine until they get political control. And then they forget that they're so of authority is essentially hidden and esoteric, and then all hell breaks loose. So you have to have this paradoxically hidden yeah. Gnostic source of authority, which means you're always unsure of the yeah. ultimate truth. And as long as you're unsure, then everything is hypothetical, as Jacob Ronofsky says, science always should be. We can never have truth or certainty, but we can have knowledge. So it, from, from, from that point of view, from the centrality of hypothetical not hypostases, but hypotheses. Actually, that's really good, but I'd have to unpack it. Um, uh, that you don't have hypostases, you have hypotheses, and then you're okay, because then you know that you don't know. You know that you're never completely sure, so you don't go off and kill people because you know they're wrong. Okay, let me, let me, the, my one, uh, yes, I, 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 I'm with you. And so... My yep. one struggle with this is the tendency to fall in a nostalgic viewpoint oh. where, you know, they had it right. We went wrong at some point. And so I so go off that for a second. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, he's not. Yeah. I mean, the one one way to to to, to approach an answer to that would be to con <laughs> Yeah, would be to contrast um, Corbin with the traditionalists, capital T traditionalists like um, uh, Hossein Nasser or Martin Lings, or there's a long list of them, Fritjof Schwann. Um, not Nasser, but many of these people were Westerners who in the early uh, 1900s uh, converted to Islam and, and called themselves the traditionalists with a capital T. There's a, there was a, a professor of religious studies, I think, in South Carolina, whose name I can't remember, who was a who who um, is a is a traditionalist. Uh, oh, what what the, um, the what's his name? Who was at MIT? <sighs> um, Houston Smith was a traditionalist, and they tend to think that yeah, it's been downhill since the prophet died. You know that things were better, and that anything before the Renaissance, um, that anything after the Renaissance has just been pure hell. You know, um, and 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 I and I understand that viewpoint. Um, I mean, I actually I got inside that for a while and thought, mm -hmm. yeah, you know, there's a, that's a, yeah, because and 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 Corbin has actually Corbin does have have a good bit of that um, because he 
thought that the modern world had gone off the tracks. But what, in my estimation, saves Corbin is his notion of perpetual interpretation, what he called mm -hmm. perpetual hermeneutics, um, which is always present. So where where the where the world had go, where the Western world had gone off the rails, it can always come back by making the making the spirit present again. Um, and well, boy, you know, I'm probably going to have to backtrack on this. Corbin is not traditionalist in the sense of of, of the others who I mentioned, um, but he does share with them a a kind of loathing for the modern world, but but it's kind of a French loathing. It's not that serious. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not, it's not a, yeah, it's, it's, that with Corbin, I at least have the sense that, well, I really need to be a little careful here because, because my reading of Corbin is, is, is more, more liberal than he in fact was. Mm -hmm. But there is there is a distinction to be made between his fairly free thinking notion of 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 bringing the past and the present together with the real loathing for modern society that is that it was felt by many of the traditionalists. So so your question is about nostalgia for the past and I think um take a take a, a page from Hillman's book rather than from Corbin here. Uh, Corbin surely did have a nostalgia for the past. In fact, there's, there's one great quote. Um, Robbie Bosnack, I think, quoted uh, Corbin to me uh, years ago because he, he knew him because they were both at Aronos when, when Bosnack was really quite young. And I think it was Bosnack who, who said, told me that Corbin once said, um, all my contemporaries are a thousand years old. All my contemporaries have been dead for a thousand years because, because he was a Platonist and a medievalist, and he didn't think anybody in the modern world could understand what he was talking about. So he did have a nostalgia for the past, and yet he thought he could make the past present. And so that's, it, even if you want to stick with traditional, uh, say, Catholicism or Islam, what's, what potentially saves it is not that you have nostalgia for the past, but that you can make the the realities right. of the past, present, right now. And Corbin says that's what, that is the only thing that keeps religion alive. And it has to be made relevant to the modern times. And yet he was pretty conservative. But, but that, but clearly his kind of theology seems to me to be the kind of theology one would adopt if one were a very liberal Christian these days. Mm -hmm. Well, with all that said, I, 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 I like that. That's kind of what I was thinking through that is that if the past stays in the past, then you have this tendency to 
to think apocalyptically, I, I guess. That, that tends to be yeah. the extension, that if the past is in the past, the end point to that mode of being is apocalyptic. But if you can yeah. bring the... And this is what... And I use that term a lot oftentimes. That I actually use that term incarnate in this context. If one can incarnate, which is to make flesh, make present, living. Mm. If I can incarnate this these modes of thinking and recollect all these um, dimensions and aspects of thinking from the past, then what happens in the present is an unfolding and a fluidity of reality as opposed to that kind of frozen dimension of the divine. That's that absolutely, about. that's Corbin. I mean, well, see, that's, yeah. at least it's my reading of Corbin. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Um, I mean, uh, yes, uh, he likes to play with time. Um uh -huh. A lot of interesting people like to play with time, including apparently modern theoretical physicists get yeah. to, they get to play with time too. But Corbin didn't like, didn't, didn't, he thought the doctrine of the incarnation was the worst thing that ever happened to Christianity um, because it anchors it in a, a moment and, and it, it anchors it right. in such a way that you have to take the whole um, apocalyptic history literally. And Corbin doesn't want to take anything literally yeah. because the literal um, has very few possibilities, whereas the imaginal or in Corbin or in Hillman's terms, the metaphorical is always unfolding mm -hmm. possibilities. So Corbin, and, and you can argue with his take on on this, but but I but but his 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 take is as follows: history is is a trap, <laughs> and so you had Genesis, the birth of Christ, and the apocalypse. You know, you go from Genesis to 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 the apocalypse with Christ in the middle, and and you have to read it literally, and it's going to be hierarchical, and and his worry was that it it takes away the the um the fullness of the present moment now there's plenty of there's plenty of far less heretical christian theologians who would argue that corban misinterprets the doctrine of the incarnation um in a way which is way too way, way too um um uh, just wrong and and ivan illich would have, would have done that had he he would have made that argument had he known of Corbin's work, which is why in one of my books I, I play them off one against the other. And Illich um, it, it does with the doctrine of incarnation very much the kind of thing that you're saying. Um, Corbin is enough of a mystic that he doesn't quite catch how an actual literal body could do that. It, it could be that he's that he's got the ghost of Descartes um, in, mm -hmm. in, in the back of his mind and, and he can't quite imaginalize. I mean, that isn't true, but he's he's arguing he's arguing against a vision of history, which which maybe very few people still adopt. It would be a, a Marxist literalist materialist vision of history that I think probably only only really dedicated Marxist materialists actually adopt anymore. Most historians and most, even most scientists, I don't know about them, um, adopt a, 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 a fuller vision of materialism. Uh, it, it, 
Yeah, I'm, I, this is going to get to, I'm not, I'm arguing, yeah, I'm not sure this would work. Um, but Corbin is saying that he's, he's worried about anchoring, anchoring God in history because God is more than that. And so much more than that, that if you did anchor God in history, the whole, you know, of creation would blow up. It would be apocalyptical. And, and that any attempt to do that is, 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 is going to make impossible the kind of incarnation that you were just talking about. That's, that's a lot, a lot of sort of gobbledygook, but um, I don't think so. Yeah. That's, uh, that makes sense. It's it, we're, we're talking about the difference between any, anybody essentially who believes they contain the divine and any yeah. kind of doctrine that can contain the divine. And what I like, and I really get this from you when in, in your book, Imaginal Love, talking about the, you know, the infinite, it, it cannot be contained. And, and that's where I like yeah. you picked up on um, Corbin's angels, um, not the, not <laughs> yeah. the, you know, feminine winged figures, but the, the kind of personal and private divinity that each of us has the capacity to, uh, to be guided by. And yeah, and Jung, Jung here talks about individuation and the genius. Is that the same stuff? I and mean, we're talking about the yeah, same yeah, things there. So. Yeah, I think so. No, I, no, absolutely. I think I think so. I think that's that's. I mean, there's there's plenty of differences between Jung and Corbin, but they're 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 talking about very much the same thing. And I don't think we want to go there too much now because i want to go somewhere else but the, the the main difference between jung and corbin uh revolves around reductionism and and jung's always saying well no 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 i can't i can't talk about the existence of god right. because i'm a psychologist not a theologian with very with very few exceptions he says well i'm, I'm just a medical man i'm just a psychologist and corbin doesn't have any of those limitations he says, no, I'm a mystical theologian. I'm going to talk about God, except I'm not actually going to talk about God because that's holy and accessible. I'm going to talk about angels instead, because those are what we can talk about. We can't, in fact, talk about God because God is, in fact, a holy trans. You can't right. say a thing about it. Corbin doesn't talk about God. But, but when Jung talks about the self, it, it's very much equivalent to Corbin's idea of the angel. Ah, the, yeah, the, the, yeah. Yeah, and and the, the duality and the syzygy and and the fact that each individual has an angel, that's very Jungian, right? So, and so not to Jung, be literalized. Have, uh, yeah, yes, and not not to be literalized, uh, and and that's uh, we need to go down that rabbit hole just so I can articulate this because I I've, I keep running into it. I'm I. It's hard to articulate the diff what 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 Hillman and you and 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 Corbin and then in my better moments maybe me mean really mean by the imaginal and I'm not sure I've got it nailed uh, frankly um, it's not literalizable and so when Hillman and Corbin talk about alchemy. Mm. They're not ever talking about literal alchemy. And when 
Corbin, and Hillman doesn't do much with astrology, but Corbin does here and there. It's not central to him in the way that alchemy is, um, but that's probably just for historical reasons. Um, he talks about astrology and, and he, in the same senses, in the same way, in the, if, with, the same, um, with the same intent that he talks about alchemy, talks about astrology and all these arcane and esoteric arts. And then I, with some frequency, run into people who, who've read my books and are interested in Corbin, and they are astrologists. And, and then they want me to comment on astrology. And my sense is that they're taking astrology quite literally, yeah, as do. if mm -hmm. the actual scientific object, you know, Saturn, has an actual literal effect right and and i just have to say well i don't actually know anything about that and then of course that's when the little fundamentalist scientist in me gets all crazy and i have to suppress him so i don't embarrass people um that's not the imaginal realm i i had a question the other day which really threw me but it's i think pertinent here and a question the other day about how do you bring the how do it really threw me. How how would you bring the esoteric doctrines of Islam as articulated by Henri Corbin to bear on, on politics today? And I was completely unprepared for that kind of question. And and I I just mumbled and I was because yeah. you can't. I mean you can, but it has to be really indirect. Yeah. I mean, you you absolutely can, but it it would be it would be equivalent. Yeah, it would be usefully equivalent to saying, "Well, how do you bring your experience, your 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 mystical experience of your Jungian self, how do you bring that to bear on politics today?" That would be a question that I could answer and that should be answered. But I had the sense, perhaps wrongly, that this was a more societal. The esoteric is esoteric. It's hidden. It's only individual. It's not social. It's not scientific. It's not literal. It's hidden. And this is interesting, too, it seems to me. Anybody who's gone through any kind of spiritual experience or, well, I won't say any kind... I hate I do that all the time. You know, assuming that my experience is everyone's experience. You know, do don't say too. we, say me. Yeah. Um, anybody who's been to some of the places that I have been um, and have had experiences of the sort that Jung seems to talk about, um, there's there's at least a long time after those experiences where they really should stay hidden. You know. They're not, they, you know, I had experiences that I can talk about now, but 20 years ago, mm-mm, mm-mm, that stuff needs to stay hidden. It, it's, it is hidden. And, and to talk about it would be some sort of really bad violation. It would be a violation of your... Now I can talk about those things and laugh and say, boy, that was a pretty... But there are things that are essentially hidden. And, and that's to bring it back to the, to the idea of education. Um, we sort of assume in 
the culture as I'm familiar with it, that everything should always be public and democratic. And we've lost, and, and I think the traditionalists and the and many religious people would 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 say, yeah, you're right, that some things are too precious to be socialized or publicized. And that's one of the reasons you gotta worry about you know, screens and technical culture and yeah. kids not ever having that sense of, of, of privacy and secrecy. And do, do kids have that anymore? I don't know. It, I mean, every, I, I can't tell you how many times I make contact with people who are tracking the phones and, uh, you know, they're, 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 the, 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 constant, yeah. constant and present for kids today. I, yeah, Illich was really worried about those sorts of issues, mm -hmm. and he didn't see the worst of it. You know, uh, he was really worried uh, from a very conservative Catholic point of view. He thought, you know, this is just going to destroy humanity. Um, and for for quite some time, I was sort of on his side. Now, I don't know. We're a pretty adaptable species, and maybe we'll figure out but it is uh, it's absolutely true that we're running an exper an experiment on our on the whole species mm -hmm. uh, particularly in the, the you know the modern west uh, we're running an experiment and it's going to be interesting mm -hmm. to see how these, how these people turn out um, and so and so a lot of the traditional a lot of the old ways of doing things really do need to pay be paid attention to. And to get back to your original question, I think that's part and parcel of this whole um, controlling dominion um, uh, capitalist um, um, experiment uh, that that because in some in some profound way, capitalism has to assume that we can be opened up, made public, taken apart, and 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 sold. <laughs> you know, now they're selling our attention. Pretty soon they'll be. I don't know what else can they sell. They're selling our sex. They're selling uh, they. I mean we. You know. I mean so so there's some. Uh, it probably Marx was the first one <laughs> to articulate that, or even before him. To Saw, saw it coming, you know, maybe somebody in the in the 16th century when they had the first or even the 14th century, you know, it's been downhill since Giotto. I mean, you can run those arguments, you know, with the first chiaroscuro. Uh oh, when when the first uh, when the first pictures rather than icons were produced, been downhill ever since. You can make that kind of an argument and then and then not take it quite literally and apply it to today. Mm -hmm. I mean you actually can. You can you can say you can say with um, Illich, maybe, uh, or your favorite conservative Catholic theologian, um, that it's been downhill since the first the first attempt to model reality in a three dimensional space. Yeah, and you know, there's a grain of truth in that. And how could we? That's part of the idol icon business. Well, Young know? said this in um, in symbol. No, it was in uh, the symbolic life. There's one. One quote about, and I, I, I don't have it close to me right now. I'm going to mess this up, but I'll get close enough. It, it says, if Christ were to come back today, oh. he would be photographed and banalized beyond uh, his capacity to tolerate, and he would die within months. And yeah. that's close yeah. enough. But essentially, what 
this is this is the point. You yeah. know, this goes back to why, you know, therapists and you know priests' children may struggle because they carry the burden of being viewed all the time. So the priest kid is the congregation. The therapist is the one who is the all seeing, like, I know what you're doing all the time. And that's, Mm, yeah. that that does, the kid doesn't have the kind of autonomy to create a sense of identities apart from the viewing eye, which is what we're all in right now that we're, we're being viewed all the time. And I, what I worry about when I try to sit down to write a, a book, which is, which is addressed to a reasonably broad audience, is that I wonder that if I've lost touch with, you know, so much of the culture. I mean, I'm 66. I'm I'm older than you are by quite a bit, and 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 I, you know, I mean, and and it happens. I mean, it happens <laughs> to all of us that we lose touch with the culture. Um, And yet, um, so so I guess the, my 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 concern is not to attempt to talk to people. No, uh, I, I I'd like to be able. Damn, you see what I'm struggling with? Well, maybe you don't. I'm not even sure what I'm struggling with. I guess I guess I want I want a sense of of uh, I want to I want to construct my imaginary audience, um, and I've never had to do that. I've always written for myself, mm-hmm. and the people who are like me read the stuff and say, "Oh, <laughs> that's really good." But now I'd like to broaden that out, and so I'm having trouble imagining. And every time I listen to a new podcast, I think, "Oh my God, there's something I had no idea even existed." And you know, two thirds of the country are just immersed in this stuff. And how are they going to possibly understand what I'm talking about? I mean, you know, we live on this little farm and we grow our own vegetables. And I have to be very careful. I, I don't want to. I want to say things that people in cities can say. Oh, right, that applies to me too, you know. And and so in this <laughs> well, just, incredibly, just so you know, I'm sitting here in a city. I'm in Houston. It's a it's a big ass city, and I've, I've got been you, in Houston. I've got your book open, and it's wonderfully accessible yeah. and has helped um, has helped me a lot. So there's there's a lot to be said about that. Well, that's the other thing. I should I, whenever I try to whenever I try to make up an audience to uh-huh. write something for, it doesn't work, right. and I always end up writing something that I want. And the best advice I ever saw about writing, I forget, it was a woman poet, and I and she wasn't one of the great enormous names of women in poetry, but she was contemporary, um, a younger woman, and she said, "Write what you want to read." Mm-hmm. And I and I thought, yeah, if I could do that, right? You know, because I'm I'm forever picking up books and thinking, no, this isn't right. Well, let me let me do this. But it's just not what I want to read. I want to share this with you because I was I did not know this existed, and I I, I, you've been extremely generous with your time, so I I'm very grateful, and I know we need to close it up pretty soon. It's fun. Um, Yeah, I gotta I gotta move some wood. Chop wood and carry water. I got this huge pine tree that came down. I have to move it. So as I was rereading your book, I I found I don't write much poetry. 
I, I write songs. I've written songs since I was very young. And mm. it's it's just always come out that way. They always have a guitar. Although I, I found at the end of your book, I wrote a poem. It's quick. But I, it was inspired, obviously, by reading. I was in Colorado at the time that I read your book. And it's a short one, but I want to share it with you because I want to... I want to maybe finish on a, f- a few words on the, the you called it um, the poetic basis of mind earlier, and that I think is the imaginal that we're that we're talking about. So the the poem goes as follows. It's untitled. The cold water from the creek washes down my face. I can taste the salt of my sweat as the water pools between my lips and my tongue touches it. The tongue that is as curious as the gopher poking her head out of her hole to see what all the fuss is about. My tongue acts without any direction from me. Maybe it knows something that I don't. Who could that be? Come out. And that's Wow, it. that is really good. <laughs> <laughs> I, that I is sweet. I didn't know that existed until uh, yesterday morning, so I wanted to share... Kind of the inspiration that, is, that your book brought to uh, that to is me. really sweet, and and I gotta say one one final thing, uh, I'm that's perfect because because I don't anymore want to write in abstractions. Mm. I want to write in realities, and I still looking for that voice so i want that tongue to come out that's 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 absolutely perfect that would be great and that's what yeah that's the poetic basis of mind well let's let's uh close it out there you have anything else to i want to oh gosh uh, you know i know that you and i could probably chat for a very long time we could do this forever um no, I don't have any. I don't have anything well, else the, except that people. People. I, here's what I want to tell people. I mean, the world is a mess. It's a mess. But but you don't know. You don't know how big a mess it is. It's probably worse than it's ever been, unless it's not, and it's still wonderful. Mm-hmm. And and what you it, how you feel about it isn't going to matter. What you do is going to matter. And what you do, if it's not based on loving something in the world, is going to cause more harm than good. So find what you love and do it. Do something. Do something with it. There. How can people reach you? You, you, your podcast that I will, I'll include all this stuff in in the liner yeah. notes as variously as possible. Um, website, any information you want to give people? Oh, uh, yeah, I, I, I used, to, I, if you Google me, you'll find the website, but it's a, you know, a Google blog spot because it's free. Um, or no, it's a Google, uh, 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 Google sites, I think. But if you Google my name, you'll find it. And then you can, if you want to send me an email, I always like that. Um, it's just my first initial and last name at gmail.com. And, and I'm happy to receive emails. And if I can respond, I, I usually do, unless I get flooded, which yeah. doesn't happen all that often. Tom, but I do I, like to hear from you. I got to tell you, I am pretty smitten with you. I just find you to be <laughs> absolutely a joy to, uh, to talk to. Great. Well, this has been fun. Yeah. Um, I'd love to come to Houston. You've got great museums there. We do. I, I spent I spent um, a long time at the um, uh, Cy Twombly Pavilion. Oh, uh, it's beautiful out there. Yes. Years ago, I spent two eight-hour days in there. Yeah. 
um, which was pretty transformative. It's, it's a, a tra great, it's a transformative space. And, and yeah. Manil is also one of the, it, yeah, I, I've said for a long time, that's the, the energetic center of my universe right there at the yeah. Rothko Chapel, Manil and Cy Twomley. Yeah. Well, thank you. Well, yeah, absolutely. It's been great fun. I really enjoy it. What a and pleasure. We'll have to meet in person someday. One of these days we will, Tom. I'm, I'm yeah. really grateful. Thank you. If the conversation's right Ask the audience Throw away all his instruments tonight It's all he's known for all his life Got the opera house Believing him that there's just no end Throwing down all the papers now Knowing not what he sings about And casting away the ones who say He's trapped within his way records and his tapes appropriate escape from ordinary Casting away the ones who say